Amaya yada yaho 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 yo mama 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 l'chaim everybody l'chaim 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 okay. Hmm, seem to be having some trouble here. Broadcasting trouble. Uh oh. Uh oh. Did you All right. So the system is working. YouTube is working. Very good. Let us begin. In our previous episode, we concluded with a teaching of our sages in the Tosefta. The Tosefta, for those who might not know, is the codicil of the Mishnah. So it's Mishnah grade or Mishnah genre teachings that for a variety of reasons were not included in the body of Mishnah itself, when Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi redacted the Mishnah in its formal iteration, but they're still very important teachings. And they were preserved at the time by other sages. Much of the Gemara is a, a contrasting of Tesefta and Mishnah or sometimes known as the Brysa. So in the Brysa, or Tesefte, it says that in order to construct a sukkah, which is ru'uya lishma, which can actually satisfy the legal halachic requirements for the sukkah as, as a <laughs> something that's valuable and able to be used for a mitzvah, in contrast to just shelter, which is not useful for a mitzvah. <laughs> when, my, when my eldest son was born, so he was, he was born here in Toronto, and it, he, he actually was born on Shabbat morning, the first day of Sukkot. So it's Erev Sukkot, and I, um, I say to my father-in-law, I say, I say you know, what if, uh, what if my wife goes into labor on Sukkot? What if she, what if, you know, Figgy goes to the hospital and I go with her, and uh, I'm not going to eat for two days because I'm not going to eat out of a sukkah. <laughs> he says, you know, that's a good point. He says, uh, I said, isn't there like a mobile sukkah? Chabad has a mobile sukkah, so it's going to be on Yom Tif. You're not using it. Why can't you just park it at the hospital? So he said, that makes a lot of sense. Good. So he says, Figgy was supposed to have his baby in North General, so uh, he called somebody he he knew New York General, and he, they said, okay, we have a gazebo. You can use the gazebo. <laughs> like, go explain to somebody that a gazebo is not a shelter, but something built on the back of a pickup truck is a shelter. It, it, didn't, it, didn't, it didn't work. Anyway, they said, okay, if it's that important to you, we're having a board meeting next month, we could discuss it. Obviously, that didn't work. <laughs> so in the end, um, my father-in-law was very resourceful. Rabbi Grossbaum called... Uh, the guy who's in charge of the parking, the old parking at North General. And he said, okay, fine, park your car. And that's what happened. And that was a good thing. Because <laughs> I met a yid in the hospital who had eaten in a sukkah for like 25 years. And he, <laughs> he ate in a sukkah together with me. Anyway, this is a, a big digression, uh, forgive me. The point I'm trying to make is simple. A sukkah 
is not a shelter. A, su- a sukkah is not a place where you can seek shelter. A sukkah is something which has halachic definition. Just like a talit is not a cloak in which you wrap yourself, even though organically the word talit means a cloak, means a garment of clothing, a suit. <laughs> not in today's day and age, we understand that a talit, or we tend to refer to a talit as a talit shal mitzvah. So today we don't say a talit shal mitzvah, we say talit. A talis is a talis. A talis is a talis shal mitzvah. But once upon a time, it was an article of clothing. So there's a difference between a, a cloak, a cape, or a talis shal mitzvah. So when we say sukkah, we're speaking about something which is halachically valuable, of halachic value. It fits the halachic definition of a sukkah. And the Tosefta tells us that there is the, this, this concept that a halachic sukkah requires two fit walls in what we would call the standard sense. Two walls. And they would seal off the entire length and the entire height of the sukkah, and it's called a wall. And then there's a third wall which can be comprised of even a single tefach, which is the size of a fist, a very small amount. So, so how would you fill the frame? Okay, so there we use all kinds of uh, halachic theoretical walls, which we talked about at length in the last episode, and I invite you to go back and watch it because some really interesting stuff there. Concepts called good asik and good arich and, 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 and love with this, it's all, all this fascinating stuff. Okay. But this is the opinion of the sages. Two standard walls and then a third wall, which is just the beginning of a wall. And then we see the rest of the wall as being filled in. Looks to you like a hollow wall, but halachically it's sufficient to make it a sukkah. And then we had the opinion of Reb Shimon. Reb Shimon said, yeah, there is this concept of a partial wall, but that's the fourth wall, not the third wall. You have to have three walls in the standard sense. And after you have three walls in the standard sense, then you can have the fourth wall, which is only created out of halachic theory and very little physical density or mass. This was the machlekes. Uh, this was the discussion that we concluded our previous episode with. And now we are going to do a sukkah source code. We're going to try to find the source of this very interesting dispute. What are they arguing about? Like, how do they just decide? Oh, two walls in a bit. Say the Chachamim, say the sages. No, 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 Rabbi Shimon says. Three walls in a bit. And there's got to be some rhyme and reason. They can't just like, argue. Well, why, why shouldn't we argue? What, what motivates that ruling? What, what school of thought what approach or methodology of biblical exorcism are these two opinions based on? And that is going to be the subject of today's class, Be'ezrat Hashem, with the help of the Almighty. L'chaim, l'chaim. So before we begin, in the actual Digmara proper, I just want to, I want to say welcome to everybody. And especially those who are on Facebook, you're welcome to stay on Facebook. But if you want to ask questions, you need to come onto YouTube. And that's where I'm watching the chat. And good evening back to you, Michal David and Mr. Flanchico. It's nice to see you watching. So anybody else who would like to comment or ask questions, please feel free to do so. And Baruch Hashem, we have a live audience too, which is, as they say, fantastic. The Gemara is going to bring four, no less than four different approaches to explaining, to giving a rationale for the dispute, for the machlekes, between the Chachamim and Rabbi Shimon. Now, in all of the different approaches, there is going to be a focus on two psukim, two verses in the Torah. This is the book of Leviticus, chapter or kapitel of Gimel, chapter 23, verses 42 and 43. That's the verses of the sukkah. Parshas Emar, the verses of the sukkah. 
What does the verse say? So the verse says the following. God intones in the 42nd verse of the 43rd chapter, Basukot Teshvu Shivat Yamim. You should dwell in the sukkah for seven days. That's a statement. Okay. Then the Torah says, Kol ha'ezrach b'Yisrael yeshvu basukot. All citizens of Israel, they must dwell in the sukkah. So we hear about sit in the sukkah, dwell in the sukkah for seven days. All citizens of Israel, they must dwell in the sukkah for seven days. Why the Torah has to tell us about kol ha'ezrach and what the second statement adds to the first is a wonderful question. It is not the purview, within the purview of this class or this Gemara. That's for a different day. And then the Torah finishes off with historical background for this mitzvah. It's a very, very unusual verse, extremely unusual. You know why? Because the Torah tells us why you should do the mitzvah. The Torah very rarely says, you should do the mitzvah because, because. The Torah says you should do a mitzvah. <laughs> God doesn't say, you should eat kosher because. Here, it doesn't just say because. It says that there is a, a, a goal to be achieved. There's a certain awareness, a certain knowledge that we're supposed to be able to accomplish by virtue of spending your time in the sukkah. And that verse, the last verse is, Lema'an yedu dorotechen, so that your future generations will know. What will they know? Ki basukot hoshavti es b'nei Yisrael b'hotzi'i otam me'eretz Mitzrayim, that I had the people of Israel dwell in the sukkah when I took them out of Egypt. Incidentally, and this is not the focus of today's class at all, but the uh, Paschim speak about this idea that when you dwell in the sukkah, this is a yidiyah. There's actually something you're supposed to be keenly aware of. This is something you have to know and be aware of because that's the purpose of dwelling in the sukkah so that you will know this. At any rate, what do we see in this verse? We see the word sukkah show up three times. Three times. Now, you don't have a chumash in front of you, but I'm going to tell you that the first time it says basukot teshvu, the word sukkot is spelled samach chof tof. Basukot. The sukkah is spelled without a vav. Because the word sukkah can be written samach chof hei. That's three letters. And we pronounce it sukkah. Well, maybe it's pronounced saka. Maybe it's pronounced sika. Well, we know it's pronounced sukkah. We know how it's pronounced. But it, not because it has the vowelization written into the actual word. The second time, it says basukot, kol yeshu basukot. Again, samach chof tof. There is no extra vav. However, when it says in the third pasuk, there it says, ki basukot. Ki basukot is spelled samach chof vov tof. Vov tof. Now what is the difference between a sukkah or sukkot? A sukkah is one sukkah. Sukkot is plural. It's many sukkot. You don't have many sukkah. And you don't have one sukkot. The festival called Sukkot is comprised of many days. So it's called the festival of Sukkot. And of course, there are many, many different people who dwell in many different Sukkot in many different parts of the world. But the days of Sukkot are days, multiples, many. Sukkot is plural. Sukkah is single. So if you look at the word Sukkot and Sukkot the first time around, it's spelled out or vocalized as plural, but it's written without the vav. It's not written in a plural fashion. Whereas the third time, 
it's written with the Vav, Basukot, Ki Basukot Hoshavti, for in Sukkot you dwelt. Why is that relevant? Oh, it's extremely relevant, as you're going to see. Because the Gemara is going to tell us now that we know how many walls the sukkah requires by virtue of how many times it says the word sukkah. The, the, the seemingly superfluous nature of multiple mentions of sukkah is not superfluous at all. Then it's extremely pointed. Three times the word sukkot is teaching us about the walls. That's uh, the simple review or simple um, prologue of what we're going to do. And the Gemara is going to be looking at this in a variety of ways. But here I want to introduce you to a principle before we read it in the actual words of the Gemara. The Torah scroll, as we have it, is identical in every part of the world. So the Yemenite Jews and the Scandinavian Jews, the Kafkaz Jews and the Italian Jews were living very distant from each other, very, very far away. And many different customs developed, including the idea that in Babylon, Iraq, Iran, Syria, Lebanon, identifying this part of the world by the names people use today, and as well as the vast overall majority of Jews in North Africa, from Egypt to Algeria to Tunisia to Morocco, their Sifri Torah are upright. And in Ashkenaz, which uh, would be Italy for the most part, Alsace-Lorraine, which later becomes France, Germany, and later Eastern Europe, Britannia, there was Jews living in Britain. So the Torahs are all horizontal. The Ashkenazi Jews have Torahs in a soft velvet cover. The Sephardic Jews can t keep the Torah in a hard cover, a hard box. And yet, the Torahs are exactly the same. There is, as a matter of fact, a single letter of dispute. A single letter of dispute. And it's the word Daka. Is it spelled with an Aleph or spelled with a He? We believe it's spelled with an Aleph. Incidentally, it doesn't change the meaning of the word. Whether you spell Ptsua Daka with an Aleph or He doesn't make a difference in the observance of this mitzvah. It means exactly the same thing. I mean, the, the, this, is, this is unbelievable. <laughs> we have a document that's been copied by hand in all different parts of the world. And it's exactly the same. Exactly the same. The style of the script changes slightly. There are a number of different styles of the script. It's the same script. An Aleph is an Aleph. A Tzaddik is a Tzaddik. And in matter, as a matter of fact, they're all the same letters. And here's something else that's really interesting. Although the Havara, which is the accent or the method of pronouncing the Hebrew, varies from place to place, the Polish Jews don't sound like the Lithuanian Jews, and they don't sound like the Hungarian Jews, they don't sound like the Russian or Ukrainian Jews, and they're all living in the same part of the world. And they sound very different from the Jews of Morocco and Algeria, or the Jews who lived in Iraq or Iran, or in Kafkaz, of course, Yemen, Taman. That's true. But everybody pronounces all the words the same way. A giant Torah, with hundreds of thousands of letters, thousands upon thousands of words, and they're all read the same way. And you can read every Hebrew word multiple ways. They all are read the same way. So whether you say Bereshit 
or Bereshis, it's the same word. It's the same word. Bara is Bara. Alekim is Alekim. So regardless of how you sing the cantillation or what accent you use, the vowelization is exactly the same. How'd that happen? You can't even get Jews in one shul to agree on things. How'd all the Jews somehow mistakenly, haphazardly happen to end up pronouncing the words exactly the same way? Think about that. The answer is, there's a tradition. We were taught from one generation to the next. This is far more compelling than a, a little shard of archaeological evidence. It's more compelling than the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is quite remarkable because parchment simply doesn't last thousands of years. It disintegrates. It's only because of unique arid temperatures in the Qumran caves that many, not all, many of these scrolls, some of them in terrible shape, managed to even be extant after so many years, after so many centuries. And of course, there are no Torah scrolls, not a single Torah scroll in the entire Dead Sea collection. Why? What do you think? Because Jews didn't leave Torah scrolls behind. You, you, you could see photos of Jews being driven out of their towns, like in the pogroms, like in a, and they're carrying a Torah. They're carrying, they left carrying the Torahs. So whenever the Jewish people living in Qumran ran away, whoever they were, they carried the Torahs with them. But they couldn't carry their library. They had a massive library. So the library that kind of preserved and hoped to come back and get the library. And that didn't happen. And it is amazing. It is, it is amazing when you get the postcard from antiquity and you get these these pieces of parchment, and, and they say exactly the same thing as our prophecy. You say it's like the same thing. Some of them are Madrashim. They say the same thing as our Madrashim. It's, it's amazing. But what's far more compelling is the fact that all the words are written the same way in all different parts of the world, and they're all said the same way. And this, my dear friends, is our Misora. This is our tradition. And from whence does it come? This is the way Moshe Rabbeinu taught it to us. So we don't know what accent Moshe Rabbeinu spoke in. We don't know if he sounded like Havaras Faradit or Ashkenazi Havara. He probably didn't sound like either. It's not relevant. What is relevant for us to know is that the way we pronounce the words, that has a tradition. The way the words are written, that has a tradition. This is referred to as Misora and Mikra. Misora means a tradition that's been handed down, a tradition that's been received. Mikra means vocalization. You have to vote, you have to say the words. How do you read it? How do you vocalize it? And that, that refers to vowelization, pronunciation. It's a sukkah, not a sakra. Nobody calls it a sakra. And that's what the Gemara is going to be about. So with this preface, the Gemara now tells us that the machlaikas that we had from the Tesefta, from the Karasa of the Mishnah, where the sages learned that it's two standard walls and a third that is only an add-on. And Rabbi Shimon said, no, three standard walls... And then the fourth wall can be an add-on. Pray tell. What is the argument about? You can see what he What's the argument about? About three walls or four walls? You say, yeah, I know that. <laughs> That's not the question. The question is, what is the origin? What is the reason? What is the source code that they are relying on? How they, how they come up with these different opinions? It's based on. So the Gemara says, Rabbonon Savri, the rabbis were of the opinion, Yesh aim le There is a mother for tradition. 
I'm translating that literally. I'm so going to explain it. Rabbi Shimon says, Yesh aim lemikra. There is a mother of the vocalization. How you vocalize, how you, how you read the word, how you speak, how you speak the word. And the Gemara is going to say that we have these, these two traditions. So before we go further, let me just tell you that they're not really arguing whether or not there is a tradition for the way it's written or a tradition for the way it's read. It's not as if the Rabbanans say, it doesn't matter. The, the aim is lemesaitis. The, the mother is only for the written word, how it's written. How you pronounce it, knock yourself out however you want. I couldn't care. And if Shimon says, no, 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 no. We don't care how you write it. We don't care if you add a yud or take a yud. We care only about the way it's read. So the Teisvis right away points out, Nobody argues. Nobody's saying that there isn't a tradition. In fact, it's totally illogical to say that there isn't a tradition for either one. There has to have been a tradition. Otherwise, they wouldn't all be precisely the same. There has to be a tradition. What is the question? What is the argument about? He says, what? Do you think according to the Rabbonon who say that there is an aim, that that it has to be vocalized in a certain way is irrelevant. There's no point to it. Do you think that Shimon says, well, written however you want? I mean, yeah, you should write it with a yud, uh, with a vav, and this one without a vav, but write it however you want. Do you think it's, this, that's pointless? Everything, everything has meaning in Torah. Every detail of Torah. Bekiva would expound on the crowns of the letters. Of course it has meaning. So, what is, what, is, what is the argument about? So the Teisvah says, milsa ahadadi, when there seems to be somewhat of a contradiction between the two traditions. When the written tradition seems to indicate one thing and the vocalized or oral, the way the word is pronounced seems to indicate something else, then the question is, which is more authoritative? Which overrides? Does the written or the vocalized tradition become most prominent, most important? That's the question. Now, an, an, an interesting thing that people ask is, um, why do we talk about the mother? The mother of tradition. There's a mother for tradition. There's, there's a woman who gave birth. You know, this baby didn't just come out of nowhere. There's a mother for this baby. Under who had this baby. This, this tradition didn't just materialize. Didn't, didn't just get decided on by a bunch of people sitting around the campfire as these uh, lying, foolish academics will have you believe. That's, that's ridiculous. A couple of people sitting around the campfire, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that, that would do it. Said nobody logical ever. So, so what birthed it? There's a tradition that birthed it. And that's, that's the aim. The thing is that, that in Torah, we often use the term av. Like, for example, when it comes to violations of Shabbat, we have an av malacha. It's really a, a parent category. And then there's offspring category. So tulda is, 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 is not specific. It's not gender specific. A tulda means an offspring. But we don't say an aim. We don't say it's the mother of all plowing or the mother of all cooking or the mother of all sowing. We say it's the father. The parent is called the father. And the Gemara says, uh, that, that the prohibition on blood is the father of them all. And from it, from it you can derive a number of other, other laws. So how come here we use the term mother and sometimes we use the term father? Well, for that matter, why don't we either always use, if you want to speak about the parent in a feminine sense, so then use mother all the time. And if you want to speak in a masculine sense, you, you use father. But like, wh why do we do sometimes mother and sometimes father? By the way, this, this concept exists very much in, in the English language today and even in other languages. I, I remember Yamach Shemo Saddam Hussein saying, this is the mother of all battles. 
It sure was. <laughs> For him, it, was, it, it spelled his end. So, so there is this, this, this concept of, you know, people speak like that. People usually tend to use the terminology of mother more so than father. So the Rif asks this question, and the Rif gets a very interesting answer in Misech Sanhedrin. The Rif says like this. The Rif, the Rif says, Rabbeinu Alphas. He was a great Talmudist and Torah leader in North Africa. We're going uh, back like 10 centuries almost, nine and a half centuries. The Rif says that when we have a halacha that impregnates other halachot, so to speak, it affects other arenas or areas of Jewish life, then it's called an av. It's a, it's a principle, it's a parent principle, and it, if you will, impregnates other principles or fertilizes other principles. So that's why it's called a father, because that's what fathers do. But he says when this principle only affects the principle we're discussing, it doesn't have a, 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 a broad application. It, it has application only in this instance, then it's called a mother, because a mother gives birth to a baby. She gave birth to this. And especially, he says, because the words misora and mikra are actually both feminine. Hebrew, like many other languages, like French, for example, has feminine tense and masculine tense. So therefore, he says, it makes sense to use the feminine term. That's what we say, aim. Okay, anyway. So the Rabbanans say there is an aim lemesora, and Abshimon says there's an aim lemikra. There is a, a source, a binding source for the written tradition, and Abshimon says no, there's a binding source for the vocalized tradition, which, as I said, doesn't mean that there's a source for one or the other. It means which, which is more authentic? When, when we have a situation where on the surface it seems to be that we're getting two messages. It's read one way and that means one thing and it's, and it's written another way and that it has a different meaning. So that's where the question is what is preeminent? What becomes the more authentic tradition? What informs our actions insofar as this mitzvah is concerned? So the Gemara goes on to continues to explain. The Gemara says, okay, like, like, like what does it have to do with the sukkah? So as I, as, as I shared with you earlier, in Parshas Emar, we have these verses that speak about the sukkah. And the first two times the sukkah is spelled singular without the vav, but the third time the sukkah is spelled plural. But all three times the sukkah is read the same way, it's vocalized the same way even though it's written different. The, dis- the differentiation is only in the written tradition, not in the vocalized tradition. <laughs> I was once talking to a guy. He was really uh, like frustrated with all these laws and details. And he said, what difference does it make? It's so, so stupid. It's meaningless. And I said, really? Yeah, yeah. What, what would be the difference? And there was a book that had come out this a long time ago. It's called The Bible Codes. A guy named Michael Drosner put out a book. And I said, did you hear about the book, The Bible Codes? Oh, yeah, that's fascinating. It's amazing. It's amazing. The count of letters, you know, 74 letters here. So that's that. And then you spell things out in acrostic and, and in diagonal. So I said, <laughs> so tell me, if there would only be 72 letters, not 74 letters, would it still spell the same thing? He says, no, I guess not. I said, oh, that's, that's good we have the letters in, eh? Now, this is the most pedestrian way to look at Torah, to think that it's a code. That, that, I mean, maybe it's a code. The, to- the Torah is godly. It could have endless codes in it. But for us, what's meaningful is not the fact that you can put it into a computer and, and, and come out with some kind of sequence. For us, what's meaningful is that the Torah is written with a purpose, with a, with a direction, that it provides guidance for us. And this is, this is, of course, the question then. So what is more prominent? The, the written form, which makes differentiation, or, or the vocalized form, which is exactly the same? So the Gemara says, Rabbon on Savri, the sages were of the opinion, they followed the school of thought, that yesh aim limeseres, there is a mother for this baby. The authentic tradition 
the one we must look at and see as most prominent is the written tradition. And what do we see in the written tradition? Basukais, basukais, spelled without a vav. The third time, spelled with a vav. So he says, if you have basukais, basukais, two times it's written without a vav. One time it's written with a vav. How many sukkas do you have here? You have four. Why do you have four? Because the first time it's written without a vav. So it's only one. Even though it's read in the plural, but it's written as one sukkah. Sukkahs, one, one samach, chof, sof. Samach, chof, tof is one sukkah. Sukkahs, samach, vav, tov, that's one sukkah. Sukkahs, plural, a minimum of two. So then I have to have at least four sukkahs mentioned here. Um, when Moshe Ravina was giving us Torah, I mean, uh, they, it was still oral. Were they at such a level that they could discern? Moshe Rabbeinu was writing the Torah mm. as he was teaching it. Mm. And he would tell them how it's written. Ah, okay. And he would tell them how it's read. And all the Jewish people learned from Moshe Rabbeinu. He taught them for 40 years how it's written and how it's read. And he reviewed it again, how it's written and how it's read. And then they would go and review their lessons, how it's written and how it's read. Mm. And then they would talk about the deeper meaning of it. The many messages that are contained within it. And that's how the tradition is passed down. And Moshe Rabbeinu himself writes the first 13 Sifri Torah. And he gives you each tribe a Torah. And one, one goes into the Beis HaMikdash, in the Aron. So we're talking here about Basukais, Basukais, Basukais. We're talking here about a minimum of four. Because, I mean, Basukais could be 40. That's true. But, but two, it's got to be at least two. So we have, we for sure have four. So the Gemara says like this. Dal chad legufe. One time, we need to know about the mitzvah. I mean, like it's, it's not as if there's redundancy when it says basukas teish v'shivas yomim. The Torah has to tell us to do this mitzvah. So one time was necessary. So then what is redundant? Or seemingly superfluous? The answer is, the other three mentions. Sukas, singular, and then sukais. So he says, Pashulahu Tulasa. That gives you three. Haha. Three is three walls. So the Torah was telling you how many walls you need in your sukkah. Okay. Then we have an oral tradition. Shtayim Kihilchatan. Two of them have to be if you will, according to standard, the strict standards. And then, And then we have this oral tradition. So the Hilchasa comes along, and what does it do for us? It minimizes, it makes the third wall a lot smaller. It tells us you don't need a whole wall. You need just a piece of a wall. The beginnings of a wall. And the rest is theoretically, if you will, in place. And how much is that? And we said that that has to be the size of a tefach. Let's take a look in Rashi. Rashi says, Yesh aim This is going to be now a review within Rashi's commentary. He says, Kamash Kosov Meisha. The way Moshe Rabbeinu wrote it. The way he, oh, pardon me, Umasar, can't see. Umasar He gave this over, this Torah over to the Jewish people. He, ha'aim ve'iker. That's the mother. Ever hear the expression, the mothership? That's the mother. Not the way it's read. And as Teisvis explains, that only means when you have a seeming contradiction between the two. Then it says, Basukais teishvu, yeishvu basukais, ke basukais heishavti, chad mila, v'tren chaseh, mole, pardon me, one is full, v'tren chaseh, and two are written deficient, minus the vav, 
Basukois, Rashi spells this out, Samach, Chof, Tof, Mashmachoda, that intimates one. So one is needed, Ligufei, the Ein Dershin, Tchilas, Posok, Shanem Arishin. You can't go and say, ah, a Posok that says you have to sit in the Sukkah, Basukah, Steshvu, it must be teaching us something. <laughs> it is that you have to dwell in the Sukkah. That's not Ladrasha. It comes for its literal meaning. Aha, so one is to teach us we have to dwell in the sukkah. Then we have another three that teaches us two standard walls, and one is Hilkasa. Hodam Rinon Le'el, this is what we spoke of earlier, and this was in our previous episode in the Gemara. Halacha Lameshem Sinai, an oral tradition from Moses at Sinai, from God, in other words. This is what we learn. The oral tradition comes to minimize the last wall. That it should be the, the sukkah has a wall which is a doifen. It has to have at least a tefach. So there you got it. According to the Rabbanon, it all makes what we call perfect sense. It all makes perfect sense. We say, we look at the way it's written. The mother is the written tradition. And the written tradition will give us four sukkos. One is to teach us about the sukkah itself. Three teaches us about the walls. And then an oral tradition teaches us you don't need to have a full three walls. So two standard or full walls. And one is a piece of a wall, a bit of a wall. And we talked about a tefach. This is the opinion of the Chachamim. However, Rabbi Shimon comes from a very different school of thought. Rabbi Shimon Savar, he says, there's a mother, all right. The Esh aim, but the aim is Lamikra. The aim is not, at the, the, the mother is not, what's authoritative is not the way it's read. What's authoritative is the way it is vocalize, the vocalization, that's the mother. And therefore, when you vocalize these words, when you read from the Torah, you don't say basukas, you say basukos. That's the way it's read. So basukas, basukas, basukas. You have three times, each one is plural. It's read plural. So the written tradition indicates one. The spoken or vocalized tradition indicates two. As such, if you have three mentions, each is plural, you have at least six. six. Exactly. Harekan Sheish. So he says, Dal Chad One verse goes for the mitzvah itself. One word is gone. Pashulu Arba. What are we left with? We're left with two words. But each one of those words is two, because it's plural. So we have actually four. So he says, well, that's, that's exactly the point. So if you need four walls for the sukkah, three have to be standard, proper. And then, then comes the hilchasa, then comes the oral tradition. And it minimizes the fourth. And it says that it's good enough if you have a tefach. So this, this dispute about the, how we give credence to the tradition, which tradition, which tradition is overridingly important, if it's the Eimle Mikro or Eimle Mesedris, this is really the origin of the dispute. That's Kavaldik. Everything works out now. It all makes sense. So the Ran... First of all, the, the Ritva asks over here. The Ritva says, I don't understand, he says. He says, um, the first time around, it said, Dalchad Ligufe, you take one sukkah and use it. Now he says, you're taking a, a verse, a whole word. Not one of the sukkahs, a whole word. It says, we need a word for the sukkahs. We need a word for the sukkah. That's two. So even if you, excuse me, you take one away, you still have five to account for. So the Ritva says, <laughs> nobody's saying you have to make a pentagon sukkah. You don't have to have five walls for sukkah. That, that actually doesn't make any sense. There are only four directions. So it's self-understood that the Torah is not mandating 
more than four walls. There are four directions. F a full circumference is four directions. Even if something's round, it's, 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 it's not a question of how many angles you make it. If a person is sitting in a hexagon or a pentagon, it doesn't mean that it's mo there's more than four directions. <laughs> it's like the, the shape of the wall is not the overriding here. So he said, therefore, it's self-understood that the Torah would have to use a word, not one sukkah, but a word. The question could be three walls of a sukkah or four walls of a sukkah. You can't have more than four walls of a sukkah. Surrounded is surrounded. So that's what the Ritva says. But the Ran, in the Chedusha Ran, in the Sechah Sanhedrin, he says something very interesting. He says, the Gemara tells us, according to Reb Shimon, that one of these verses comes to teach us that a sukkah is a sukkah. So the Ran asks, hmm, so one of the verses teaches us that a sukkah is a sukkah. That's really interesting. And if the verse wouldn't be here, then, then what would I think is supposed to find shelter in? Because this is not the only place in the Torah where the sukkah is mentioned. What would you think you find shelter in? Like, what are we learning here? Oh, we're learning one for the shelter. Of course, one for the shelter. The schach, that's self-understood. You have to find shelter. Under what? Under the stars. That's not shelter. It's self-understood that shelter is always going to be a shelter, a roof over your head. We proverbially say, I got to acquire a roof over my head. I'm seeking shelter. Why? Oh, because it's very sunny. Where are you going to go? I'm probably out in the sun. That's silly. You have to go under something that's going to block the sun. What if it's raining? I'm seeking shelter. I want strong walls. The roof doesn't matter. I just want strong walls. Yeah, that's not going to help you very much. Because you need shelter. And shelter indicates a covering on the roof. So this is what the Ran says. He says, the says, What is it teaching us? Like, how else could you make a sukkah? As that's good, the Torah told us that a sukkah has to have a roof because otherwise I would think the, you know, you have to tell us that you have to have a roof and you tell us you have to have walls. Otherwise, I would think, he says, yeah, I would think that you could have a cupola. You could have a canopy. That could be a way to find shelter. There's even an opinion that that works as a sukkah, by the way. Or minimal walls can help you. And it could be basically a canopy. But the schach on top, I mean, obviously it has to have schach. So what does it mean that one of the mentions is used for the sukkah itself? So the Ran gives a very interesting answer. He says, it seems to me that the answer to that very question would be that the If you wouldn't have a verse, you would say shelter. What kind of shelter? I don't know, shelter. Tell me. Um, we have a halacha that says that you have to make the sukkah tasa that you have to place the schach on the walls of the sukkah. Or you, you can't make a sukkah under a pre-existing canopy. Or for example, make it under a tree. So, let me ask you like a, like a silly question. If a sukkah had the schach put on when there was no walls at all. Is it a kosher sukkah? No walls. Just a frame. And the schach was put on top. Would it be a kosher sukkah? The answer is no. Because by the time it became a sukkah, it automatically became a sukkah. You didn't make a sukkah. You have to have a sukkah, meaning you have to have the partitions, the barriers in place, and then you put schach on top. But if I would put the schach first and then put the walls after, how would you know? How would you know? You come to my house. It's a nice sukkah. It's very nice, beautiful sukkah. Beautiful, very nice. So I found out the hard way that before I spend time in somebody's sukkah, I have to ask them, did you put the schach up first? Because that would be a problem. Many people in our neighborhood have these trellises. They have these kind of... It, the frame is there all year. So they don't need to build the walls. The walls are filled in. That could be a problem. You wouldn't know the difference. 
There is no practical difference. It's not something that the naked eye can see. But it's factually not kosher. Where'd you get that from? I mean, it says a sukkah. Say, so, yeah, I know it says a sukkah. Dwell in a sukkah. But how do you know the sukkah is tansevalei menosui? How do you know the sukkah has to be made in a certain order? And that, says the Ram, is exactly what we mean when we say that one of the words of sukkah is used to teach us about the sukkah itself. So it does need to be taught. It's not self-understood at all. I mean, if you think about the pasuk, it says, the first pasuk says, basukah teshvo, you should dwell in the sukkah. And then it says, kola ezrach bisol, should dwell in the sukkah. And then it says, you dwell in the sukkah, and you remember, you know that you left Mitzrayim. So, <laughs> it's all about the person. It's not, it, it, there isn't a mitzvah to actually make a sukkah. To build a sukkah is not a mitzvah. You don't make a bracha on building a sukkah. What happens if I didn't build a sukkah? All right, I can be in somebody else's sukkah. Yes, you should make a sukkah, you should build a sukkah, it's wonderful, but it isn't actually a mitzvah to build a sukkah. So if it isn't actually a mitzvah to build a sukkah, you can build a sukkah a month before sukkahs, you build it two months before sukkahs. But mitzvahs have to be done in a specific time. You can't dwell in the sukkah the day before sukkot or the day after sukkot if you want to do the mitzvah. You have to dwell in the sukkah on sukkot. One of the reasons that on the first night we make a bracha of leishev basukkah and only afterwards a shechiyonu is because we have to make the sukkah into a sukkah. By, by declaring it to be a sukkah on sukkot, we imbue it with its full holiness, so to speak. So, if, if, if it's not a mitzvah to build a sukkah, and it's, it's about spending the time in the sukkah, what indeed is the difference how the sukkah was made? Why does it make a difference if the sukkah was an accident, a hurricane that just deposited uh, a whole bunch of foliage? Oh, look at that. God made me a sukkah. It's conceivable. It's not kosher. So it's not just about me dwelling in the sukkah. The, the sukkah itself has instructions. That says the Rebbeinu Nisan. That says the Ran. has to be learned from a pasuk. has to be learned from a pasuk. So this is the first approach to sourcing. This is the source code of the sukkah. Now you know why we have this dispute. Let's go quickly into the second one. Now we'll break. The Gemara now says, This is in typical Gemara style. And if you wish, and if you will, then you can say, Everybody from the sages to the Shimon and in between agree. Yes, aim le mikra. It's all about the vocalization. A Torah that sits in the Aron Kodesh all day doesn't accomplish anything. It has to be taken out and read. It's how you read the Torah. It's not good enough to have a Torah. The aim is not just le mesodes for the tradition of how it's read. The most important thing is reading the Torah. So there's an aim le mikra. Everybody agrees. That's, that's the overriding importance is how you read the Torah. Well, in that case, what is the argument about? So he says, and here, the dispute of whether there has to be three walls, meaning two standard and one theoretical, or three standard and a fourth that's theoretical. But Michael Miflegi, what is the dispute? What is the root source of this argument? Mar Sovar, one holds, one is of the opinion, Sechocha. One says that the covering of the sukkah needs to be taught from a pasuk as well. And the other says that that the covering of the sukkah does not have to be learned from a pasuk. And in that case... The question would be whether or not we need a pasuk for this, or it's halacha l'moshe misinai. So let's say that it's aim mikra. Everybody agrees the vocalization is most important. If the vocalization is most important, then we have basukas, basukas, basukas. Three words, plural, six sukkas. Aha! 
So, Chomim come along and say, we need to have a verse that teaches us details of the Shach. That the Shach has to be covered in a certain way. So therefore, just like you have to learn about the walls and they have halachas, you got to learn about the roof and it has halachas. What it's made of. What suffices, what doesn't. Can it be made of any kind of wood? Can you use pieces of furniture and pile it onto your roof and make a sukkah out of that? It's wood. No, it's not. Because it's why? Because it's a keli. Because it's an instrument. Because it's no longer looked at as wood. It's looked at as a broomstick. So in that case, it can't be used for a sukkah. Who says? Aha. This is the question. Does that need to have, do we need to learn that the, in the same way we need to have walls for a sukkah, in the same way we need to have a roof for a sukkah. So if we need to have a roof for a sukkah, then in that case, one of the psukim is teaching us about the roof of the sukkah. And if one of the verses is coming to teach me about a roof for the sukkah, so in that case, if the schach is considered like a wall, because the sukkah is a shelter, and the shelter is made up of a covering as well as walls, both the east, west, south, and north, as well as the up, the roof, both of them, so to speak, are part of the shelter. So in addition to learning about the walls, I'm learning about the schach. And in that case, what am I left with? I only have three walls left. However, Marsava Reb Shimon says, no, no, no. That doesn't need to have a pasuk. And if it doesn't need to have a pasuk, then what am I left with? I'm left with four. Because remember, the first, the first sukkah, that teaches us about the sukkah altogether. But what, what makes a sukkah? But now the question is, do the details of the schach require a posuk as do the details of the walls? The walls have halachas and the schach has halachas. And so one posuk is taken out of the equation right away when you say aim mikra that you file a vocalization for the sukkah itself. And then the question is on the details. So you only have two words left. Two words. Each one is plural that gives you four. According to the sages, one of them is talking about the, the wall on top. So the walls around are only so to speak, three left over. And we have a lachal Messina. It tells us one of them has to be partial. So it's two and a bit. According to Rabbi Shimon, he says, we don't need to have another pasuk to teach us about the details of the schach. We know that. Rashi says, the schach doesn't need to have a pasuk, a scripture, a verse, a scriptural source. He says, it's, it's, it's not possible to have a sukkah without schach. The word sukkah means schach. Obviously, there would have to be a lachas of schach. It goes without saying. You don't need a verse for that. <laughs> I need a verse that you have to have walls. That a canopy or cupola is not good enough. However, however the, 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 the sages say no. No, the word sukkah is not good enough. I actually need to have. So the upshot is, according to the first approach, this is connected to the dispute about which, as, which is preeminent, whether we look at the written tradition as authoritative or the vocalized tradition as authoritative. And then the Gemara says, and even if you will, that the sages here don't argue with Hib Shimon, they have a different root source. The root source is, do you actually need a source for the schach, that's on top of the sukkah. And we're still like in the middle. This is just part one. And next week, with Hashem's help, we'll go to part two. We'll trace the origins. Another two methods. Two methods, very much within the framework of what we spoke about. Similar ideas to what we shared in this episode. That will be Bezrat Hashem in our coming class. Where we'll see two more possibilities in which we could source or explain the dispute between the Chachamim and Rabbi Shimon. And, and the fascinating thing is that regardless of how we source the argument, 
all the rivers of reason flow into the same sea of Talmud. They all come to this. They're all, there's no question here. The discussion here is not on a practical level. The difference isn't practical. The difference is well, one of jurisprudence, one of the Talmudic philosophy behind where we might learn or understand the origin of this dispute. And what we can see is that every opinion in halacha is storied. It's based on a tremendous amount of background. And this helps us appreciate how we arrive at halacha and how HaKadosh Baruch Hu in His infinite Torah gives us the wisdom to be able to understand Hashem's intentions and, and to follow the instructions we get so that we can merit Be'ezrat Hashem to sit in the sukkah and Hashem should help us that as we are learning about this in preparing for the upcoming Chagim, for the upcoming holidays, that by the time Sukkot comes along, we should long already have been reunited in the third base Hamikdash, and in the proverbial sukkah of David HaMelech, Bimheira will be Amenu speedily and in our days. Amen. Thank you so much for joining. Have a beautiful night.